Esther chapter 9, we are, we are getting close. We're going to wrap up our series, Lord willing, uh, through the book of Esther next Sunday. So we come this morning to really a kind of a tricky passage, and certainly it's at least tricky to preach. Um, and it's not, it's not tricky because of particular textual problems in the passage or challenges or, or really interpretive issues that are there in the text. It's tricky because of our modern sensitivities. Um, and Roger only read through verse 2. If you've read through the passage already, you, you know where, what we'll see, but we'll, we'll get there in a moment. Um, but we're, we're, we're somewhat embarrassed by what we read and how this passage sounds to our 21st century American ears. We, and so we're, we're kind of tempted to sort of nervously gloss over it and just kind of keep on moving and, and finish out uh, study. We, and, and so, but the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied this passage uh, this week and over the last few weeks, the more I've come to realize how desperately we do need to slow down and really see what's here. There's wonderful truth that God wants us to know right here in this chapter. And so by the time we're done this morning, this is my prayer this week and this, thinking about this, I pray that, that our hearts would just be soaring with praise to the God of Esther chapter 9, that we would, we would see the Lord and in His grace and in His power and in His provision, and we would just be ready to exalt and celebrate Him. And that's where the chapter is going to end, and that's where I pray the Lord would allow us, not just this Sunday, but next Sunday as well as we conclude this study. But the ninth chapter of Esther was sort of alluded to in what we read, but it's a very bloody chapter. There are there, there are body counts in this chapter in the tens of thousands. And so you have, it's a story of God's people putting to death thousands of, of enemies who were trying to kill them. That's what we're looking at today. And so if we gave, if we gave um, you know, ratings to passages of Scripture like we give movie ratings, this would probably not be a PG passage on account of the violence. And, and the bloodshed. And so, but it, but it's this finale. It, it is this section of Esther in particular in, in this part of the Esther story that, that is behind this major annual feast and festival for Jews, even today. And so the passage provides the background. It gives us the rationale for this yearly celebration, the Feast of Purim. And we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But, but so, so that's what's kind of behind this passage, but at a, at a very superficial level, particularly reading it through, again, the lens of our Western uh, 21st century eyes, it seems like a kind of an unfortunate ending to an otherwise very wonderful book. Um, and so we've enjoyed this, this true story that's been full of irony and this kind of stinging humor and these clever plot twists that, that have had us at times almost laughing out loud at the foolishness of those who oppose the Lord and his people. And, and also just standing in awe of, of God's power and his wisdom and the way he's, he's brought his people out of these situations that seemed uh, just impossible. And so we've, we've beheld all of those things. And so at a superficial level, though, we come to Esther 9 to 10, and it takes all of that great stuff we've been considering, and it spoils it. Because it kind of seems like now when the, the good guys, that we will call them, they, they kind of get the upper hand over the bad guys, that they actually start acting like the bad guys. And... We're a little, maybe feel a little disappointed. And so, and we know that sort of thing is possible, don't we? 
I mean, we, we know that happens all the time. This is politics 101. Whenever there's a big election and the changing of administrations, we see, you know, oh, hey, I'm not going to be like those guys. And once we get them out of power, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna really work for the people and they get in power and then, you know, that's just all self-focused and everything. So if we have any shred of humility and honesty, we know this is a tendency in our own life. I mean, we, we, even the most godly people, they're significantly flawed. And when do those flaws most obviously come out and and when are they most exposed it's when we get any sort of power and influence that's when they really start to show and just so like esther mordecai they have this power this influence we can be we can be all humble and dependent upon the lord when we're weak and when we're vulnerable and when we're disadvantaged and when we feel threatened then then when we think though we've gained the upper hand when we get a little power uh, taste a little bit of that. We can become proud and we can become mean and violent. We can abuse the power we've come into and the oppressed ones can become those who oppress as soon as that shoe is on the other foot. And we know this. Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This happens all the time. We can all attest to this. And so it's certainly plausible that something of that sort of thing is happening here in Esther chapter 9 to 10. Now that the Lord has graciously brought Mordecai and Esther and God's people from these, you know, absolute depth, depths of despair and, and, and utter defeat and disadvantage, now he's brought them to sit in these high places of power and prestige. Uh, you know, they could now become these sort of mirror images of the tyrants that they've just now depl- displaced. And that could happen. Could, could that be what's going on here in Esther 9 and 10? Is, has have Esther and Mordecai become these bloodthirsty tyrants in their own right? Has absolute power corrupted them? Absolutely. It's plausible, but I don't think that's at all what's going on here. And, and so I, as we look carefully at this passage and we see it in its wider biblical context, there it has the marks of being something else entirely. And so something bigger, something deeper, something, something more significant than just kind of political power broking, brokering and, and this social upheaval that we see with nations all the time, something more is going on here. What we find is that the, the unnamed God that we've, we've seen in silhouette throughout the study of Esther, he's invisible, he's not named in Esther, but he's there, he's in silhouette, but he has been working all along the way behind um, behind this part of the story as well. He's where he's here. He's here. He's turning the tables to provide for his people to, to preserve the promises, promises that he's made and, and will not let them go. And so that's what we're going to see this morning is, and we've continued to see this throughout and we'll, we'll see it again today. When the, uh, when the invisible hand of God turns the tables, this is what we see. And the first thing we'll note is that the, the overlooked God is feared. The overlooked God is feared. And so the question coming out of chapter 8, if you are with us last week, we, we had this question that's kind of hanging now over chapter 9. Which edict is going to win the day? Which edict's going to win? And so in back, way back in chapter 3, we, had that, uh, we were introduced to that extermination edict. This was Haman's plot to completely eradicate the Jewish people. And so that edict allowed, didn't just allow it, 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 it required the Persian people, to take up arms, to kill all the Jews, men, women, and children, plunder their goods on this particular day, 11 months from when that edict was made. So we saw that back in chapter 3. 
then two months after that edict was made, we were in chapter 8. So things kind of slowed down in the story of Esther. And so in chapter 8, last week, we saw this new edict that the Lord uh, uh, just through his providence arranged so that this could be written. This, uh, this edict written by Mordecai that now stated that the Jews, they could defend themselves by force. And, and they could take the lives of their attackers if necessary on that very same scheduled day. And so when chapter 9 uh, opens, as we're looking here, it's now about eight months, uh, excuse me, nine months after chapter 8. So there's been, a, there've been nine, uh, nine months that have transpired between chapter 8 and chapter 9. So about 11, obviously 11 months from that first decree back in chapter 3. If we go back to Esther chapter 1, when we, when we started this thing, we're talking about, uh, about approximately 10 years that have transpired. And so how, how will all of this play out? How, which edict is going to win the day? And that's where we get. We pick up again in verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, which you could almost pluralize those, those because there were two commands, there were two edicts, Haman's extermination edict and then uh, Mordecai's deliverance edict for the Jews. On that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, what does it say? The reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Those who hated them. Those who hated them enough to want to kill them. Those who wanted to commit genocide against the entire Jewish people. The, those who wanted to eliminate an entire people group. Because, because their religion and their customs and their language was different. And I would say there's more spiritual forces at work behind that. But those, these hate-filled enemies of God who are poised, who are prepared, who have their swords sharpened, they're ready to go. They're ready to kill their Jewish neighbors. They... They were ready to gain mastery over them, but the text says the reverse occurred. If some of you are using the New International Version, NIV, it says the tables were turned. Tables were turned. That's not a, it's not a, a very literal translation, but it drives the point home, doesn't it? The tables were turned. Everything changed. The circumstances completely changed for the Jews on that day. Their emotions completely changed. We're going to see next next Sunday. We get down into the later part of this chapter, I think verse 22. It says, their sorrow turned to joy. Everything changed. The tables turned. Why? Because instead of being completely overpowered by their enemies, they overpowered those who hated them and were trying to kill them. From sorrow to joy, from sure defeat to certain decisive victory. We had uh, uh, Sarah pass, and uh, she planned a, a game day for families, uh, I don't know, several weeks ago now. And we met up here on a Saturday and, and had little card tournaments and those kinds of things. I, I won my table, but... Um, no, but we, we, one of the games we played was Uno, and some of you have played Uno a long time. But if, if you've played the newer version of Uno, there's, there's, a, there's a card in there that allows you, if you draw it and can play it, to swap hands with somebody else at the table. And so you imagine you have this terrible hand, and it's just like you, you just keep being given these draw four cards, and you're just loading cards up, and, and people are skipping you. An unnamed youngest daughter of mine kept doing this to Pastor Eric at our table. And so he was not able to play. Everybody was skipping him. But, you know, you, but you just imagine you end up with like 25, 30 cards. You can hardly hold. You got cards everywhere. And, and, and yet, 
somebody gives you a draw four card, and one of the cards you draw is one of those, you know, switch hands cards. And so the next time you finally get around and you're actually to play, you get to play that card. And that means you can exchange hands again with anybody else around that table. And just so happens that just, just in that turn, the person right across from you, they, you know, they played a card and said, oh, no, they have one card left. They have one card left. And so they have one card left. Unbeknownst to you, it's a wild card. So they can play at anything. So you switch hands, and you, in an instant, go from sure defeat to guaranteed victory. I mean, the tables have turned. They, they were going to win. You were going to lose. But the reverse occurred. The tables have turned. That's what's happened here in a much more significant way than a game of Uno uh, on a Saturday morning at the church. But their lives, their line, their hopes, God's promises, all of these things were on the line. And, the, and yet the tables are turned. The tables are turned. The reverse happens and they go from this pervasive, deep sorrow to expressive joy and feasting from certain defeat, death to victory in life. Everything turns. And so you see verse 2 again, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. No one could stand against them. No one, literally, no one could stand before them. This is the same phrase as used in Joshua chapter 10 in verse 8 when, when God's people, they're surrounded, they're outnumbered, they are facing seemingly certain defeat. And the Lord speaks to Joshua and he says to him, he says, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so it is with Esther here. This phrase points to this overwhelming, complete, unexpected reversal. And what it's pointing to is there's some higher power. There's something else at work here. This isn't just a human phenomenon, a sociological thing that can be explained. No, God's invisible hand is behind this. There's no other explanation. And so that's, that's what this language is pointing to, but know what the text says or know what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the fear of God fell on all the people's. It says the fear of them, fear of the Jewish people. We, we, we saw a similar phrase at the end of Esther 8 last Sunday. We saw it back in chapter 6 as well. So, so is, it, is it just a fear of the Jewish people or certain Jewish people that are now in positions of power? Let me, let me just say, one commentator says this. I think it's very helpful. He says, in part, this fear could be explained by the unexpected change of power in Susa and by the right of the Jews to defend themselves against a totally unjust law. So certainly the, the political landscape changed. Ooh, now they're in power. I think I'm afraid of those people. So you could say in part that's behind this. But is that all that's going on here? I don't think so. The author continues. But neither of those factors account for the implied inevitability of Jewish victory. The, the fear of God's people was explicable only in terms of fear of their God who vindicated their righteous cause. That's what's going on. So even though God's name isn't mentioned in this book, that, that does not mean that his enemies, the Jews' enemies, aren't, weren't aware of him. And we saw this with Haman's wife, remember? And they're, they're counseling him to, to do away with Mordecai and have him hanged on the gallows. 
But, but they, they understand that there's this God of the Jews, Yahweh, this covenant Lord, and, and they allude to him and to his protection of his people. Way back, we saw this in chapter 6, verse 13. And so this phrase, the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. It's very pregnant. It's a very loaded phrase. When you go back to Joshua 2, you maybe another example of this in, in Old Testament history. Joshua 2, where the, 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 the Hebrew spies enter into Jericho. So it was just before the, uh, the, the Jews had taken the promised land as they're starting, starting that conquest. And these spies ended up in Rahab's house. And Rahab's alerted to who, who these people are. And instead of ratting them out, though, what does she do? She begs for their protection. And they have no power. They have, I mean, there's nothing about them that would say, okay, yeah, yeah I should really fear you. Uh, nothing about that, but she says in Joshua 2, 9 to 11, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites uh, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. They're fearing you because of your God. It's because of your God. Now it's been a long time since the Red Sea when we come to the Esther chapter 9 and 10. And so, but everyone in Persia seems to have this understanding that, that the Lord must be some kind of sleeping giant. You don't want to wake him. Don't mess with him. Don't mess with his people. And, and, and he's not someone to be trifled with. Beware of the Jews. Beware of their God. And so he may have been overlooked, but we, but, and he may never have been mentioned by name in this story, but if you think he's sleeping or if you think he's absent, you're wrong. You're wrong. I mean, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Keep this in mind, that there's no promise in the Old Testament or the New Testament that God's people won't really suffer physical harm or that they won't won't ever face physical persecution or suffering, that, that we will never face suffering, or that we won't even be martyred. There's no promise guaranteeing that. But the hope that sustained Mordecai, the hope that manif- that's manifested here in chapter 9 of Esther, is, is this, that the, the messianic family line is not going to be wiped out. God will keep his promises. God may be overlooked, but he is God to be feared. Now, now, what is our hope today? Now, we're some 2,500 years after Esther. We're some 2,000 years after the Messiah's, 2,000 years after the Messiah's come. What is our hope? Well, it's, it's manifold, but let me just give you a couple aspects of it. One, we could say this, that God has promised to build his church. And, and he's, he's promised to build it. He's promised to preserve it. You know, the, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, listen, individual churches, they rise and fall. Every single church, this one will not be an exception if the Lord tarries, it will have a shelf life. We all do. And so churches stay faithful, the churches drift away. Churches grow big and influential, churches are scattered by persecution. And so, but, but this is the certainty. It's Christ is building his church. He's building his church. Another aspect of this hope that we can cling to now, where we sit, again, 2,500 years later, is that God promises that not even death can separate His church, His bride, from the bridegroom. Nothing can separate us. The God, the God whom 
All must fear can sometimes be overlooked. But that does not mean that he has disappeared. He is at work. He is, he is very active. He is invisible at times. His hand is invisible. He's in incognito at times. But he's still pulling the strings from behind the scenes. He is still guarding and protecting his people. He is still preserving his promises. He's still guiding history and all of its little small aspects and events to its ultimate end. He is still holding us and intervening for us. He is, he is working. So the fear, the fear of an overlooked God, that's, that's only one way though to explain the turning of the tables here in this chapter. God is not the over, only thing over, overlooked, not the only thing overlooked here. Second thing we would say is the overlooked word, the overlooked word, the word of God is fulfilled here. Now, what word is being fulfilled? We'll get to that in just a moment, but look at verse 5 and 6 right now. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, and I'm not listing these names, I'm sorry, the ten sons of Haman and the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. I've, now, I've, I've pronounced a lot of names through this study, but I did not take the time to work out the pronunciation of those. I'm sorry. Verse 5 says, you note that, they did as they pleased with them. How does that sound to you? Is that a little unsettling to you? Now listen, it's not saying that they just broke out into this, this orgy of indulgence and violence against people. They, they had this free pass on this one day to do anything they wanted. There were no laws that applied to them. They could do whatever they wanted to these people. That's not what this is saying. What he's saying is there, was no, there were no government officials that hindered their efforts here. That's because why? Because Mordecai's new decree, it's signed by the king. It's got his signet ring on it. And through this decree... Through this decree of this wicked tyrant king, God's word is being fulfilled and accomplished. That's how, that's how providence works. He uses these, this, this, these wicked people in these messy circumstances and he still works out his will. He accomplishes his word. You might have forgotten the word of the Lord. It's easy to overlook. I mean, we've talked about this throughout this study, but even in previous weeks, we, we saw... You look down in chapter 9, verse 24, it mentions this. But Haman, again, remember, he's an Agagite. There's that word that, uh, again, just sounds like a mouthful of gravel when we say it. It just sounds like this is a bad guy. He's an Agagite, a descendant of Agag, king of, uh, an ancient king of the Amalekites. So there's history here. Now, I think Haman, the Agagite, I think Mordecai, the Jew, they were probably very aware of that, of that uh, history, that ancient enmity between these two tribes. There's a lot of old bad blood here. And in and, and, and that part of the world, that's just not let go of. So the Amalekites, you remember we talked about this, they were those cowards that, that just ruthlessly attacked uh, the Israelites, as they were going through the wilderness, particularly they picked off the women and children who were lagging behind and, and, and were defenseless as they journeyed to the promised land. And so in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25, we find God just vows to wipe out the Amalekites because of this. And then in 1 Samuel 15, remember God commanded King Saul. Saul, he's a, he's a, he's an, uh, a relative, a, a distant relative of Mordecai. They're both Benjaminites, remember? But he, God commanded King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, including King Agag. 
So here we have this scenario set up. We have a, a distant relative of Saul, the one who was supposed to wipe out the Agagites, and we have a uh, distant relative of King uh, Agag here, and here they are in this context, and, and their people and their allies are meeting together. But again, remember, Saul's, now it's command to Saul, 1 Samuel 15, 3, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. King Saul said, you know what? I don't know if that's necessary. He thinks he's smarter than God. And so what do we find? A few verses later, verse 9, but Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. So instead of destroying those who were deserving of God's judgment, and they were, and, and, and instead of being those instruments of God's judgment, this kind of holy warfare on these people, these means of God, sort of human, it's like a human uh, raining down a fire. It's God's judgment. It's not just these people deciding we think we're against these people. This is God's, God's prerogative. Instead of doing that, they compromised and they left some alive. And instead of destroying the possessions as God instructed them, they took some of it as plunder. And so eventually, what we find, though, because of that disobedience, Israel starts to look more and more like their wicked neighbors here. And they start taking on more of those characteristics, like the nations that they were supposed to drive out and defeat. And so back to Esther chapter 9, though. Now it's time to finish the job. To fulfill the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy 25, 19. This is what the Lord said he was going to do. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. His people haven't been faithful. They haven't done it. And the Lord says, I'm going to accomplish this. My word will be fulfilled. So this is bigger than bad blood. This is bigger than revenge. This is bigger. This isn't just political. This isn't bloodlust. That's not what we find in this chapter. This is fulfillment of God's overlooked word. Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under, from under heaven. You shall not forget. That's what's behind this. So listen, as brutal as all of this is in Esther 9, and it's brutal. We need to understand that God's people, they were engaged in something entirely different than what we think of as kind of like this modern, um, this modern program of, of ethnic cleansing we see in parts of the world. It's so detestable. This, or or this, this geopolitical land grabbing and displacing people and taking land. That, that, that they were, that's not what this is. They were prosecuting the decree of God's judgment upon his enemies. If we understand that the Lord is the true God and all humanity is under judgment, then, 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 then we can understand this. God, they're, 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 they're fulfilling God's overlooked word. It was, in fact, a very graphic, graphic expression of a much deeper and older conflict that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God declared that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would live in this perpetual conflict, enmity, uh, until there would be one who would come and crush the serpent's head. And so Saul versus Agag, Esther versus Mordecai, Esther and Mordecai and, and God's people at the time versus Haman and all of his allies and so many, many other conflicts in between and around them, they all give expression to this warfare that's been raging since the garden. 
And, and that, that, that warfare will meet its final expression, did meet its final expression, in the Lord Jesus Christ who prosecuted this climactic holy war against Satan himself. This is what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, those satanic powers, and he has put them to open shame. And we're going to get there in just a moment in this chapter where Haman's sons are going to be uh, hung as, as this act of shame. And so here is Christ's holy war, though, at the cross. What, what's unique about this conquest, Paul says, though, is that Jesus triumphs over his enemies in the cross. That's the word he uses. In the cross. The defeat of the devil and of his allies, both supernatural and human, it's ultimately achieved at Calvary. We're, we're neither, it's not Satan, it's not sinners, it's Christ himself who hangs and, and, and takes on that cursed fate of Haman there by hanging on that tree. And so as you pull back the curtain of Esther chapter 9, we have to see how this scene, it fits within this much bigger story of redemption that the Lord is accomplishing and is pointing to. All right, but back to Esther 9. All right, so God's word, it was forgotten. It was willfully overlooked by Saul and those and, and God's people at that time, but it's not by those in here in Esther chapter 9. So not, not after God had given them this incredible, unexpected deliverance. They're not going to overlook his word. Not after God has allowed Ahasuerus' word to match God's word and to accomplish God's purposes, this word of this wicked king, to, to wipe out the last of the Amalekites, Haman and all of his sons. Uh, so I just say, as we see this, what I want you to see is God is, God is in this story. He's in this. This story belongs here in God's word, and he is part of the story. Now, can you then believe that God is part of your story? You understand him, that he, he, he is, there, that he has a plan for you. This, your life is not detached where we're just kind of looking back with interest at this distant story that took place so long ago that we have really no touch points with. No, there is, there is a story that God is working and, and writing and is accomplishing and he's bringing this to pass and your life fits in within this broader story. He, and, and he has a plan for you and he's working things together in your life for good. And he's, and he's using even very messy and very hard things. And corrupt people to accomplish that. Don't overlook this God. Don't overlook his word. He, he will keep his promises, even if it takes a long, long time like it did here. No matter how long it takes. And, and your story, though, here's the encouragement, will one day mirror Israel's story. It, despite the fact that people overlooked God and overlooked his word, uh, it, it will be fulfilled, and his people will one day enjoy this great feast. And that brings us to the last point this morning. It's this, the overjoyed people of God feast. So the overlooked God is feared. The overlooked word of God is fulfilled. And finally, the overjoyed people of God feast. Now, we hear feasting. It almost sounds like a bad word to us. I think in our context, we're, we're sort of shamed into thinking of just gluttonous thoughts when we hear the word feasting. This is a bad thing. Overactive desires, that's what we think. Thanksgiving coming up where you get all nervous. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to act like I'm feasting, you know. But, but you, you think of that, that language, and then you, you see what we're going to read here in chapter 9. We're going to read in verses 11 to 15 here in a moment. Is this, 
are these over, overactive desires here? Is this overactive vengeance? Look at verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. Those 500 men that were killed in Susa, the king's told about that. And the king said to the queen, uh, said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now notice, Esther doesn't initiate this request. Um, Hasuerus heard these reports of battle in the streets of Susa and the, the capital and the citadel there. And kind of like the, the sociopath he's shown himself to be throughout this book, he seems to almost take pleasure in this. He's not bothered by the carnage of his people, I would just say that much. And so he's kind of impressed. 500 slain in Susa, wow, that's, that's great. It's a good start. Um, what do you think could happen in the rest of the empire if we broaden this out? And so almost by way of reward, it seems, he, he, he gives this unconditional, unlimited request again to Esther. And so he initiates this, but she's ready with an answer. So we acknowledge that. What's, what's her wish? Another day of killing. Another day of killing. More death, more humiliation for Haman's family. Now, there are some commentators that I think are good in a lot of ways, but they say this is, this is Esther's darkest hour. This is her moral low point right here. Um, maybe the first day of killing, yes, that's justified. That's self-defense. That's holy warfare, however you want to label it. But what about this? Why does she ask for this? Why more killing? What's the motive here? Well, we're not told. <laughs> This, we're, again, we're accustomed to this by now. There's no indication of, of why she made this request. There, um, I don't know if it, you know, they just ran out of time. And, uh, what, what, the, what the desire, what the intentions are, whether the motives were good or bad, that's not the point. Whether Esther's motives are good, pure, or not pure, her God, who's the ultimate author of this, he, is, he remains holy, he remains righteous in his wrath against the guilty against these bloodthirsty enemies of God who, who wanted to destroy his people without cause, against the demonic powers that are behind them, trying to snuff out the promised seed of the woman. I know that doesn't resolve all of our tension with this, but, but that's, that we, have to, we have to rest in that. Now, as far as the hanging goes, it was, it was meant to highlight, and this, this was a common practice this time, that the bodies would be impaled and hung as this, as this act of shame. But it's, it's not just, I don't think it's just simply that they're trying to rub it in here. That's not it. One writer says this, By hanging the bodies of Haman's sons, Esther will resolve the remaining tension in the story. Haman's body has been disgraced, but now the line of enmity against the Jews is also permanently disgraced. This is the final victory over their enemies. And another one adds, Haman had no seed left to carry on his unholy war against the seed of the Jews. None of his sons can possibly take up their father's torch, and no others would dare to try after seeing the fate of Haman's household. All right. Then the feasting. Then the feasting. This is, this is a victory feast. This, is, this, this victory is all but assured in verse 6. So there are 500 men killed in Susa. We see where it's headed. Then in verses 15 and 16, we get more details. There are 300 more men killed in Susa the next day. And we're also told that 75 men had been killed on that first day. 
throughout the empire. So, so the next day they rested and they feasted. Verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day they rested and they and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Now there's a lot of details. Here's the big picture. So the details would you say. So this is the second day of battle in Susa. First day, the 500 killed, 75,000 killed throughout the empire, but there were these 300 additional who were killed in Susa on the second day. So they celebrated a day later than everybody else. The, the author is giving some explanation why even today, uh, Jews in Jerusalem and some other cities, they celebrate a day later than everybody else, the Feast of, of Purim. And he's kind of giving some explanation why this is the case historically. And so we'll talk more about that next week. Now I'd be curious, if any of you have been part of a Purim uh, celebration, if you have Jewish friends or neighbors and they've invited you in, please talk to me, reach out to me. I'd love to uh, just hear from you on, on that experience. And I've read some, I'm probably going to reach out to Wes Tabor and pick his brain a little bit as well, and just kind of get how that's celebrated in modern ways. But, uh, but the big picture here is the, the reason for the feast is because God has worked this deliverance for his people. He's done this. Remember way back in the beginning of this letter, Mordecai said to Esther as she's struggling with this decision to to intercede for his people, he says, you know what, if you don't, the Lord is going to, there's going to be deliverance that's going to rise from somewhere else. Somewhere besides Esther. Now she's obviously played a major role in this, but this is, the Lord is the one who's accomplishing this deliverance. And, and there's this glorious irony here, even in this. And so, scatter, one writer says, Scattered though they were over the empire, the Jews kept their identity and rejoiced together in their common experience of deliverance. And here's the key. Thus, a plot intended to destroy them resulted in a festival which helped to unite and sustain them as a people. The tables were turned. The reverse occurred. They had seen a great deliverance and they could not help but celebrate and feast. The tables, again, were completely turned. The overlooked God was feared. The overlooked word was fulfilled. And the overjoyed people of God now rejoice. So we see this this picture of this holy warfare here in Esther chapter 9, one that may have may embarrass us a little at first, but I hope that's not the case. Now, this type of, this particular type of holy warfare, obviously, I hope it's obvious, it's not part of our calling today as Christians, right? I mean, Jesus rebuked James and John for these kinds of thoughts of vengeance and he, he for their desire to call down fire from heaven against uh, the Samaritan village that wouldn't welcome Jesus. We saw this in Luke, you see this in Luke chapter 9. So today we're not we're not uh, we're not uh, um, involved in some kind of evangelical holy warfare where we take up the sword and tell our non-Christian neighbors and friends and family members convert or die or something like that. But it's important, though. I say all that, to, but but it's important to understand why we're not called to that particular expression of warfare. It's not because holy. War was somehow wrong in its original context. I know we may think like that. Like that's that's sort of the old like middle school boy version of God. He's just awkward, developing. Didn't really. Know, sorry, I'm, I'm offending a lot of middle school boys here. They're probably anyway. But like like God, we're sort of in, like that's God in the in early stages. But he grew out of that. Now he's a loving, gracious God. That's not what this is. 
We're not, it's not because that was wrong then. It's not because it was an ungodly thing, something God's people shouldn't have participated in back then. It's not because uh, it's out of date and old-fashioned and some, some you know, barbaric and uncivilized practice of long ago. And now we modern folks, we've, we've grown beyond that. We are way more civilized, and therefore we have abandoned anything like this. That's not the reason why. We have abandoned holy war in this form because we live in a different era of redemptive history. It's God's prerogative. We live in an era of the outpouring of grace in which we fight with spiritual weapons to what? To bring the gospel to the nations. To, 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 to defeat God's enemies, as it were, by seeing them graciously turned into God's friends. We've had this missions conference. This is what we've been talking about. This is, how we, this is how we wage warfare. And so we fight now with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that we want to see distributed and translated and, and go out and find their way into people's hands and into their hearts. Instead of turning live enemies into dead corpses, we want to see dead sinners transformed into live saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons of the Most High. Now we wrestle in prayer, seeking God's powerful work in the hearts of our friends and our neighbors and our enemies. So what gives us, listen though, this is what I want you to see, and I I hope you can follow my thought here. What, What gives us urgency to that task though is not distinct from what we just have been looking at in Esther 9. What gives us urgency is the fact that God's nature has not changed. It is not, and his edict of death is still against all rebellious sinners. It stands. All men and women, young and old, must ultimately bow before Christ or be eternally damned. That still stands. There is no middle ground. We are either numbered among the Lord's people or we are numbered among his enemies. All and and the wrong allegiance there will have eternal implications. And so the, this, this old mosaic era practice of holy warfare, it's, it's in itself this foreshadowing of, uh, within history of this last judgment that's coming. A warning to people everywhere. Don't presume upon God's grace and mercy. And it's incentive for us to preach the gospel and to courageously go and to lay down our lives and love for, for others, have compassion for sinners like we once were, doomed and damned, and that they might come to Christ and be saved. But there is still judgment to come. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is going to return one day, and he's going to be dressed in robes, dipped in blood, and he's going to be riding on a white horse, and he's going to have a sword in his hand, and he's going to slay the nations. Revelation 19 tells us this. So it's not that God has changed. It's not that, that this, is, this, this is just antiquated. No, physical holy war is obsolete, or it's not obsolete. It's just been temporarily suspended for this dispensation. Christ is returning. And so even now, though, brothers and sisters, we're locked in, we're still locked in combat, aren't we? I mean, we still see that language in Scripture. There's spiritual battle being waged as Christians. The pattern continues, but now we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the Christian life. Well, listen, hear this. Our conflict, here's the hope for us. Unlike Esther... 
our conflict isn't waged against the backdrop of, of our king's past failures like hers was. I'm talking about Ahasuerus. No, we fight in light of a better king's perfect victory. It's very different. We are fighting a battle day by day against sin, against the flesh, against the devil. But we don't fight with any doubt about the final outcome. We know what Esther didn't know. We know that the victory has already been won. It's secure for us in Christ. Christ has, Colossians 2.15 again, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, triumphing over them in him. So which is why Paul can quote Genesis 3.15, again, the passage that we've referenced many times throughout this, that first promise of the Messiah who would come and crush the head of the serpent, of Satan himself, and apply it. Paul can apply that not just to Jesus, but to us in Romans 16.20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. All the kids who used to go to VBS are thinking of a song right now. Um, But he will bring us into the same victory that Christ has already secured and won. He will crush Satan under our feet because the seed of the woman has already crushed the serpent's head. Isn't that good news? I mean, some of you, I know we're, we're discouraged by <coughs> in our own conflict with sin. We have, these, we have these persistent sins that we just seem, cannot seem to get traction in dealing with. And we live with this sting, a stinging conscience and, and we live with shame over this sin daily and we long for deliverance. Who will, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul says in Romans 7.25. We live with that. Some of you are in context at work perhaps in your office or at the hospital or, or as you students in school and, or even in your family and, and, and the, the claims of the gospel are constantly ridiculed. You live with that. And you're weary and you're bruised and you wonder if you can keep going on in that. Some of you are distraught over the decline in our culture. There are godless worldviews that are gaining traction that are, that are, and there's momentum and, and it's changing society around us in, in awful ways and we're part of that society. And so you, you struggle to remain hopeful. Remember, oh this, the holy war has been waged and it has been won at the cross. And the, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is one you can plead for yourself because it has already been kept on your behalf in Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That frees us then to love, to, to engage, to plead, to not wage war against human enemies, but to wage war for enemies. Because... He's already done all of that at the cross, and we have the certainty that we will. So don't give up. Fight on. Press on. Love on. Pray on in the knowledge that sin and Satan and unbelief and cynicism, it will not win because Christ has already won. Listen, our Lord's Day gathering, every Lord's Day gathering is really a time of feasting. It should be. It's a feasting. It's a reveling. It's a celebration of the fact that the tables have been turned. That, that the redemptive reversal of our eternal fate has taken place. And so are, are we celebrating that reality Sunday after Sunday as we come together? Really daily. 
But, but the Jews, they celebrated their deliverance, even though they still lived in a hostile empire in which there were circumstances that, that could change at any moment for them and turn dark again and dangerous for them. How much more should we then celebrate? Since in Christ, our, our eternal fortunes have been, have been secured. There's no question mark hanging over them. There's, there's no further edict that could counter the edict that has been made already that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are, we are secure. No one, nothing can separate us in all creation or beyond from the Lord's love for us in Christ. And so we have this unshakable hope that should lead to um, uncontainable joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the better king who has come. The, the king who, having tasted death for us, is now exalted on the throne and he reigns over all. And so, Lord, even now as we sing, we lift our hearts to praise King Jesus. We, we rejoice in the knowledge that he has risen, he has crushed the serpent's head, and he has promised one day that he will bring us into that same victory. So give us grace, Lord, as we cling to that promise in all of the difficulties we endure right now to press on, to keep on, to keep on resting on the Lord Jesus alone that all honor and glory might be His. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together that God who has overcome rejoice that the Lord is King.